if we have not met yet. My name is Marianne Nowak. I am the pastor to women, and I have the great joy of joining my brothers on the preaching team and occasionally get to come and bring you a, a message from God's Word. And so I, I want to challenge you to think about something this morning. Have you ever experienced a profound sense of loneliness? Have you ever experienced loneliness? Have you ever been in a time where you felt isolated from other people or friendless or withdrawn maybe from your family, your community, or just had that deep sense of longing for the companionship of another person? Maybe pandemic was that for you. Maybe you weren't even lonely in your life until the pandemic hit and now you've tasted a new sense of what it means to be alone, to be isolated. I experienced a kind of loneliness like this after I graduated from college. I majored in marketing and management at Montana State University. And when I graduated, I actually landed my dream job. I was hired into a very specialized area of a company called Hallmark Marketing Corporation out of Kansas City. This was a dream job for a 21-year-old girl. And um, at the time, Hallmark was in trouble with the Equal Opportunity Commission, so they were trying to fast-track women into upper management. So they hired me into a very unique starting role with the company, giving me a bustling sales territory in Northern California. And my job required that I travel over three states selling Hallmark products to department store buyers who bought that kind of merchandise for their large chains. So I left all of my friends in Bozeman, Montana, and I moved to Sacramento, California. First thing I did was I, I rented a very nice condo and I moved in with Luke, not my boyfriend, my beloved black lab, my only friend in the world. And um, I started my career all alone. I was either working in my home office all alone or I spent the days driving in my company car all alone across three states, California, Nevada, and Utah. Day in and day out, I was all alone in my new job, all alone. This was before cell phones, so you couldn't even pick up the phone and call someone to talk to along the way. The best I could do was pop in a cassette tape and listen to somebody read a book to me. I didn't have a corporate office to go to every day. I didn't have friends to, to go have dinner with or hors d'oeuvres with after work. I, I didn't have clients who were actually interested in being my friend because I was traveling in from another state just for the day and then leaving, and nobody wants to be a friend with their traveling sales rep. Neighbors were so hard to meet. The condo that I lived in, everybody just kind of came and went out of their carports, and I didn't see anybody that I lived next door to. It was such a weird feeling to live in this huge metropolitan area, literally the capital of the state of California, and know no one. The grocery store clerk, the mailman, the landlord, they were all complete strangers to me. None of them, I didn't recognize a single face as being familiar, and nobody knew my name. I was so profoundly alone. Have you ever felt that way? 
Have you ever moved to a new place or started a new job or gone to a new school or walked into a new church and just felt like you know no one? No one even looks vaguely familiar. A recent study released by the U.S. Surgeon General warned that America right now is facing an epidemic of loneliness that is as dangerous to our health as if we smoked 15 cigarettes a day. Can you believe it? According to the study, people who experience lonely and loneliness and isolation are 29 more, have a 29 increased risk of heart disease, a 50% increased risk of dementia, and a 32% increased risk for a stroke. Now, for years, physicians have understood the relationship between loneliness and isolation and emotional health. They have seen the correlation between anxiety, depression, and suicide, and those who are dealing with the emotional ramifications of loneliness and isolation. But these new findings about the, the implications of loneliness and isolation on the physical health have really surprised the medical community. The Surgeon General confirmed that the risk of premature death from loneliness is actually greater than the risk of death from obesity and smoking. And it's estimated that 50% of Americans today, right now, are affected by loneliness. And of course, we know this was only intensified through the pandemic, right? You might be feeling lonely right now right here, for a whole variety of reasons, even though, look, you're surrounded by hundreds of people. But one profound truth that we've learned over these past several weeks in our study in Ecclesiastes is that there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Solomon discovered the, the vanity, the emptiness, the meaninglessness, or the hevel of loneliness, and he shares his wisdom of what he learned in our text today. So if you need a Bible, raise your hands. Bibles are gonna come forward. There's some Bibles in the back of the room as well. And would you open to Ecclesiastes 4? We're gonna begin reading in verse seven. All right, let's look at God's word. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, and yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I tolling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The preacher in Ecclesiastes has wisdom for us this morning as we're gonna examine this passage really in two categories. First, we're gonna look at the vanity of individualism which leads to isolation. We'll see that in verses seven and eight. And then we're gonna see the vanity of self-sufficiency which leads to aloneness in verses nine through 12. 
But you know, it's not enough just to glean wisdom from Solomon's writings. We have to also apply it to our own lives. So I wanna also share with you an encouragement and a challenge today that you can, can take out into your life and apply it immediately. Let me just pray that God will speak to us this morning through his word. Father, we come before you humbly. I think all of us at some point in our lives have tasted aloneness or loneliness or have felt isolated. It's a painful place to be. So Lord, I pray that as we, as we walk through this wisdom that we've gleaned from Solomon in, in, his, in your word that you've provided for us, that you might open our ears, tender our hearts, and quicken our minds to hear from your powerful Holy Spirit this morning so that we know how to move forward in life appreciating the depth of community and the richness of our friendship with Jesus. We ask this in your name, amen. So we find as we start in this passage that Solomon begins by telling us a very sad story about a solitary man. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. So this is a man who has no spouse, he has no siblings, he has no children, he's alone. And yet we see that his sole focus in life is his work. And we get the sense that this man is alone by choice because as we read on, we see that he has a passion for money. He says, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? So this is a man who has actually carved out a life of aloneness for himself so that he can pursue wealth. He labors day and night to make money, but he doesn't have anyone to share his money with. He doesn't have any heirs to leave his money to when he dies. He has no time to enjoy the monetary rewards of his labor. He doesn't have opportunity, even margin, to take a vacation from his busy life or just to pause and just to enjoy the, the beautiful surroundings that he's living in and just enjoy being human. He doesn't even have any time for that because he's laboring, he's toiling all the time. He just works and he works and he works and he never stops to ask himself, why is he so enslaved to his job? Why is he working so hard when there's nobody to share the fruits of his labor with? There's nobody to share with. There's no margin of time to travel and to recreate. And we see that, we get the sense that he's perpetually dissatisfied with his life, and through this relentless toil, he's actually become a miser, like Hetty Green. Anybody ever heard of Hetty Green? You probably haven't heard of her. She was a fi female financier at the turn of the century. She was born in 1823 to a very wealthy Massachusetts family who was in the whaling business. And from the time she was a young girl, she was obsessed with money. Her grandpa taught her about finance and from the age of 13, she was actually managing all the accounting for her family business. Can you imagine? When she married, she made her husband sign a prenup in the 1800s, do you realize how unusual that was? 
And after her husband died, people began calling her the Witch of Wall Street. Now, this picture of her is actually what she wore at her daughter's wedding. She had a little sprinkle of white on her black clothes, but traditionally, she only wore black. She, they called her the Witch of Wall Street because she never took off her black mourning clothes after her husband died, not because she was in a perpetual state of mourning, but because she didn't want to spend money on buying any other clothes. It's so sad. She, um, she ate cold oatmeal every morning for breakfast because she didn't want to pay the money to heat the stove. When her son, this true story, when her son became ill, she took so long searching for a free medical clinic to take him to that his disease progressed to the point where he had to have his leg amputated. And they say she hastened even her own death because she had a stroke while she was arguing with someone about the cost of skim milk. Isn't that astounding? When she died in 1916, she had over $100 million in liquid assets and much more in real estate investments. And she was recorded as the richest woman in the world by a long shot. But it was unhappy business for her just like it was for the man in Solomon's day. Because as the preacher said, this also is vanity. This is an unhappy business. Jesus said in Mark 8, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? It's so wise for us to stop at times and just reflect on our lives once in a while and ask the question that the solitary man actually failed to ask himself, which is, for whom do I toil? Why am I working so hard? Who am I sharing the fruits of my labor with? Is work dominating my life, my thoughts, my energy? God did not intend for us to labor in vain. We've talked about this several times. It's come up in our Ecclesiastes passages the, the, how important work is, but not that he intended for us to labor in vain. Our work is meant for the glory of God and for the good of other people. And if all we're doing is, is striving to amass more wealth and we're not actually contributing anything to the value of our community, the people that live around us, then we're not using the rewards of our labor to feed and shelter others or to bless others. We're not emulating Christ through our generosity. In fact, what we end up doing is living a very anti-love thy neighbor life, which is not just exactly what Jesus told us not to do. If we build a fortress of isolation between ourselves and the world through workaholism, we're gonna die alone and we're gonna leave it all behind to nobody who even cares. And that's meaninglessness, Solomon says, that's vanity. As we go on to our next section, this is leading Solomon now to consider the importance of companionship or friendship. He says two are better than one. Now God made us for a relationship with himself and he made us for a relationship with each other. We go back to Genesis 2.18 and the Lord God said, it is not good for man, Adam, should be, to be alone. He says, I'm gonna make a helper fit for him. Now the reason that man should not be alone is that man is made in the image of God and God is not alone. God exists in a relationship, a triune relationship with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And so he made us in his image and he knows how we were designed to have relationship with him and relationship with other people. God made for Adam a companion and together they were given the task of partnering in their work in the garden and building a family together. God didn't design humans for, for solitary, self-sufficient, individual lives, living and working alone. He made us to enjoy relationships. Relationships with our families, relationships with our friends, and relationships with our communities. We are social creatures by design. And it doesn't matter whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you were made to flourish as a human being in the context of community. So Solomon is gonna go on and he's gonna share with us four reasons why two are better than one. And the first thing he says is quite simply, just two are more productive than one. He says in verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Two people get more done when they're working together. Two people encourage each other to, to keep going so they finish the task. Two people bring their unique gifts together to make something better than if they had worked as individuals. And two get to share in the joys of work and celebrate their accomplishments together. Last summer, I invited six women to join me in a project writing curriculum for um, our River Bible study, the River's Our Women's Bible study, and it had always been my dream that one day we could write our own curriculum. So I invited six, since now become seven, women to join me, and we have, our, our team is diversified, so we have various ages, we have various seasons of life, and we have various journeys of faith. And the way that we've been working together has been so amazing over this past year, each month, one person writes a Bible study lesson, distributes it to the team, we all go and do it as though we were students, and then we gather together for about a three-hour conversation where we collaborate together and we discuss it, and what we end up with is so much better than what the one person produced. It's amazing how when all of us get together and we all bring our gifts and our thoughts and our experiences, we produce something that's so much better than one person could have produced. And together, we're so looking forward to the rewards of our toil one day when we can bring the study to our women here and also to churches around our city to have something to share and to celebrate together. Who do you share your workload with? Who do you encourage in their labors? It can be as small as helping a family member do the dishes. Every night after dinner, I'm exhausted by my day's work. And every night, I just wanna leave all the dishes in the sink and wait till tomorrow. I just don't even care. I don't know about you, but I don't even care. But we invited my 89-year-old mom to live with us last summer, and every night she gets up from the table and she starts loading the dishwasher, and she says to me, come on, Marianne, come load the dishwasher with me. She says, every night, she says, there's nothing worse than waking up the next morning with a kitchen full of dirty dishes. So I get up and I start to help her. And as we're loading the dishwasher, we soon forget about how messy and dirty everything is. We start having wonderful conversations about the past because her mind is very much into the things of the past. As you know, as you get older, the stories of your childhood become crystal clear. So we get lost in these wonderful conversations and before we know it, the kitchen is sparkling clean and I've enjoyed her companionship 
I've forgotten about how icky the work is, and I have a beautiful clean kitchen to wake up to the next morning. Who can you come alongside at home? Who can you come alongside at work? Who can you come alongside at school? Who can you come alongside at church and partner and help and encourage them in their labors? Partnering, partnering together in work is one of the best ways to make a deep and lasting friendship. And coming and serving along some, uh, alongside someone in ministry is a wonderful way to get to know someone new and to have a, a, a friendship that begins to develop. How many of you have made a friend by serving the Lord in some capacity in ministry? Look, it's the best way to meet someone new and make a genuine deep friendship. Well, the next thing he says, Solomon says, is that two are stronger, verse 10. He says, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now, the preacher has his Middle Eastern context in mind um, because in his day, the roads were very dangerous. People would walk along trails and they would fall down into ravines or they would step on what be, was really a covered animal trap and they'd fall into a pit. This was very common. In fact, Jesus even talked about this in Luke 6. He said, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? So we get the idea that, that even in Jesus' day, there were pits that people regularly fell into. The risk of falling was very real. But if a person fell into a pit, who would lift him out? There were no cell phones to call for help. You would be stuck in that pit until someone happened to come along and hear you screaming. Without a, without, a person without a companion would probably perish if they fell down a ravine or fell into a pit. Now today, we teach our kids about the buddy system, right? We teach them that it's not good to go places alone. It's wiser and it's safer to go somewhere with a friend. A person who is alone today is vulnerable to many unseen dangers, both physical and spiritual, in the darkness of our world. But how can we provide strength to a person who maybe has fallen into a pit of despair or stumbled into sin and heartache? How can we be a friend to someone who's going through a divorce or who is in the middle of a financial crisis or who's struggling with perpetual unemployment how can we walk alongside one, side someone who's grieving the loss of a loved one? Or how can we be a listening ear to someone who's discouraged? What does it look like to give the gift of your presence to another person? To just be available, to listen, to look, to notice, to be an instrument in the hands of Jesus to help lift somebody out of a hard place. We need each other for encouragement in the hard times. And we also need the accountability and strength of a friend when we're facing things like the dangers of like sin and temptation. To have a friend that you can talk to and confess to and be honest with can prevent a lot of missteps in life when you have someone to really talk to. The third thing he says is that two provide warmth. He says in verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? So again, the preacher has like the Middle Eastern traveler in his mind because people who traveled in those days through the cold desert would often sleep outside. They'd, they'd be out in the cold. And you know they didn't carry camping gear or backpacks. That was too much for someone to carry that kind of equipment. So most of the time, if people were traveling, and you know they walked wherever they went, it was, took a long distance to get places, they would just sleep with their cloak. 
They would only have their cloak to sleep with. But if two or more people were, were traveling together, they actually could sleep back to back and they could share each other's body heat and stay warm. And of course, if you were traveling with your spouse, you could put your cloaks together and you could cuddle under the blankets. That probably happened once in a while. Um, but either way, another person's body heat was a tool for survival on a cold night. And we too can offer the warmth of friendship to another person. We can do that by being hospitable. We can do that by being open and transparent with our lives. I hear a frequent um, testimony at the Introducing River West class, which we just had one last week. And I hear this over and over again. People say, when I came to your church for the first time, I just felt like I was home. I've heard that so often. I just felt there was something warm and hospitable about what I experienced. And, and that's because of you. That's because of of the warmth and the hospitality that you express to people when they come and they sit by you and they're new. But I just wanna challenge you that there's more than that. There are people sitting beside you today who are feeling cold and alone for a whole variety of reasons. I know there are some who are feeling alone in their singleness because they come into a community where there are families and marriages and they, all they see is that they have this deep longing in their hearts to have a, a spouse and to have children and they feel alone in that. I know there are some of you today who are feeling alone in your marriage. You're married but your spouse doesn't believe in Jesus and you come to church every single week alone and you sit alone and you have this depth of loneliness in your heart because you're looking at couples sitting together who are worshiping together and it makes you feel so alone. I know that, that for some of you, you're alone in your sadness because you have this deep sense of longing for a person that you're missing, that's no longer with you. And you come and you might smile and have joy on the outside, but on the inside you're hurting, you're missing someone. I know that some of you feel alone because you're estranged from your children, maybe even your adult children. And you feel that emptiness, that missingness, that that loneliness for family, and some of you are alone in your fears because you've got a medical diagnosis that is just scaring you to death, and you're feeling that weight of like, what's gonna happen next to me? And nobody around knows what you're carrying in your heart, and that makes you feel alone. And some of you walk through the church and you've been so brutalized by the world and so betrayed by people, and you think, I can be with people, but I don't know if I'm actually ever gonna trust anyone again and you feel alone in that. Just because we're in a room full of people doesn't mean that you or the person sitting next to you um, is, isn't struggling with loneliness right now. Look around, who needs a friend? Who needs an extension of hospitality? Who needs a, a vulnerable story from your life that can connect with someone else? Who needs a surrogate family to sit next to you on Sunday? Who needs an invitation to lunch after church? Who needs a warm smile and a, or a big hug this morning? The greatest gift that God gave to us, his people, is the church. It's the greatest gift. What a gift he gave us. While we wait, living in a broken world for the return of Christ to come and make all things new, we have each other. We get to, we get to live in community with each other as the body of Christ. A community of people who love God and who love each other as we walk through life sharing a common love and faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah. The fourth thing he says is that to provide protection. 
He says in verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So a person who's alone could be overwhelmed by thugs. We think about the story of the Good Samaritan where Jesus described how a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And we know this could happen to any of us today, right? The world is a dangerous world, but, but we have a better chance of defending ourselves from danger if we're with another person. There's strength in numbers. Two's better than one. Three is better yet, right? You've probably actually heard that phrase, a three-fold cord is not quickly broken at a wedding, right? How many of you have heard that at a wedding or had it at your own wedding? Um, it's a scripture that's very common to use at weddings. The idea is that um, when God is the third person joined with the bride and groom, that the marriage will be stronger and not easily broken, which is true. But was Solomon actually thinking this as he was thinking about the third person in this dangerous encounter? Or was he just imagining strength in numbers? Uh, we don't know. But the marriage application takes us back to the Garden of Eden when God joined Adam and Eve together and walked with them in paradise before the fall. This triad relationship is how we were made to live. And it's only because that sin entered the human race and life became so complicated and relationships then have come under the ramification of sin that 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 relationship feels so challenging. You know, the world that we live in today, we live in a world that celebrates self-sufficiency and, and individualism. We live in a world today that is grooming us to think that, that we can actually do anything and everything on our own, that we don't actually need anybody. We're living in a world today that just celebrates the individual's aspirations and achievements. And even our young people are, are being groomed to think that they actually don't need to get married. They can fulfill their dreams by themselves. People are groomed to make a, a master plan for their lives, to, to make a schematic of how they think their lives will go. And then if somebody just happens to fit into their master plan, well, that's a bonus, but it's not necessary. And that's a lie. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is reminding us that pursuing aloneness and isolation is empty and meaningless. There's no benefit. This is not how we were created. Instead, we were made for companionship. And Jesus modeled it, this for us. We look at the life of Jesus and we see this is how he lived. Okay, imagine Jesus, the son of God. Does he need anybody else? No. But does he time and time again invite people to join him in his mission on earth? Yes. From the very start, he called disciples, he had followers, he had so many people who joined him in the work of the ministry. He gathered men and women to himself. Jesus understood also the necessity of human companionship as he sent his disciples out to do the work of the ministry. We notice in scripture that he always sent them out in pairs, two by two. Mark 6, 7, it says he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority to, to over the unclean spirits. In Luke 10, when he gathered the 72, he sent them out, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Jesus taught his disciples that there was gonna be strength in numbers as they witnessed truth. In Matthew 18, he said, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus knew there was power in two or three witnesses to the truth. He encouraged them also to rely on the power of their unity in prayer. He said to them, there's more power in prayer when you are gathered two or three together. Matthew 18, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And he commanded us to love. He commanded us, telling us that there's power in our ability to love our neighbor as ourself, to love God and love our neighbor. You might remember in the New Testament, Jesus summarized all of the 10 commandments from the Old Testament into the two. He said in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you notice how these two commandments take us right back to the Garden of Eden? Right back to where Adam and Eve were loving each other and God was loving them, and there was this beautiful triad relationship before the fall. Now for many of us, the pursuit of love will lead to marriage. But for all of us, the application of love thy neighbor as ourselves will provide opportunities for deep and meaningful friendships. My season after, of loneliness after college actually proved to be one of the most life-transforming seasons I've, I've had. It drove me, in my aloneness, it drove me to go deep with Jesus, because I had no one else. I had no one to talk to but him and Luke. Luke didn't talk back. Jesus actually spoke to me powerfully through his word. It drove me to be able to, to spend time in the Bible. It gave me opportunity. It gave me opportunity to um, contemplate my life. And in my kind of painful time of aloneness, God gave me a thirst for greater intimacy with Christ. I really wanted to know him better. I really wanted to have a depth of relationship with him. And he also used that time to convict me that I was not to return to the sins of my youth, or particularly the sins that I had left behind at college. It was a very transforming time, and I wanted and committed to follow him faithfully and find friends who would share my values. So I began to do some research to find a church in Sacramento, Bible teaching church, that had a good young adults group. And so I showed up one Sunday all by myself to this church. I didn't know anyone, but that Sunday, the pastor did something he had never done before. And you would just hate this if Pastor Adam ever did this here. He said, if anyone's new, would you please stand up? And I stood up. Now, I'm telling you, he'd never done this in the past, and he'd never done it in the six years I was there following. So here I am standing, and right behind me is this whole community of young adults. And immediately they said, oh, you've gotta to come to our Sunday school class, which just meets the next hour. So I went to their Sunday school class. From that moment forward, I had this amazing community of friends. They were all like post-college, just beginning their careers, or maybe some were still in college. They welcomed me into their Bible study where I grew so rich and deep in my faith. 
They had all kinds of wholesome activities to do that we would do together, unlike things that we did in college. And it was, it was, I instantly had the sweetest friendships. And after a few months, they said to me, you know what, there's somebody we want you to meet. He reminds us of you, he's kind of a natural leader like you are. His name is Bob Nowak. Nine months later, Bob and I were married, and 40 years later, well, the rest is history. But here's the thing, the church is God's gift to us. It's the community of God's people on earth. It's the place where we can worship together and grow in our faith. We can love one another. We can serve together. We are never alone when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ because as we're celebrating today, he sent his Holy Spirit to live within us. We have the Spirit of God living within us when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and he's given us brothers and sisters in Christ to share life and faith together. So I wanna challenge you this morning to engage in a friendship with Jesus. It's astounding that the Son of God, the creator of the world, the author of our salvation, actually calls us friends. John 15, 15, he's, Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I wanna encourage you to spend time with your friend, Jesus the one who invites you to come into a relationship, a personal relationship with him. I wanna encourage you to invite Jesus into your marriage, to not be just a duo, but to be a trio with Christ. And I wanna encourage you that whether you're alone and lonely today, or whether you feel like my cup runneth over with companionship, I wanna encourage you to be the friend that someone else needs. Be an instrument of Jesus in someone else's life and help that person to experience what it's like to, to be loved by God and to be loved by neighbor, to be a recipient of the great commandment to love. So let me pray about this as we prepare our hearts to go to the table. Father, we wanna just acknowledge that it's only because of Jesus, because of his death, his sacrifice, his atonement for our sin on the cross, that we can be in such a free relationship with you that we can actually be called your friend. Without the cross, we would be your enemy. But because of the cross, you call us friends. You welcome us near. You give us your spirit. We are never alone. You say that you'll never, you'll, you'll never leave us or forsake us. You are with us always. And I just wanna ask, Lord, that as we go to the table, that we might remember again the privilege that we have because of what you've done for us to draw near to you and to walk through life with your companionship first and foremost. And then to also experience the guiding hand of, of your divine spirit on our lives as you lead us into community. And we wanna praise and thank you for the gift of the church. These brothers and sisters that we share a depth of relationship with because you have called us together as your children, as people of God. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.